so this morning, we're going to keep going. Last week, I just want to remind you of, of the big idea that we got from Second Peter. Um, because of our identity, because of who we are, Peter tells us to abstain from passions of the flesh because they are waging war against our souls. And that is a very strong statement. Those are strong words. And, and our, our actions, our motivations for how we choose, how we're going to handle the sexuality that God has given us is based on what Peter says here, our identity. We have to understand who we are in Christ in understanding how to make those choices. And waging war against our souls, those are strong words for things that we so easily justify, isn't it? I mean, these are things that, that there are lots of, there's lots of logic in the world about these issues. And lots of that logic, as worldly as it is, makes very much sense to us. It makes a lot of sense. But Peter doesn't speak of these things lightly. He speaks of them, and, and all of Scripture speaks of them very, very forcefully and heavily. They're, they're important. And let's just think about this morning as we kind of jump into what we're going to do today. Uh, think about some of the logic that's in the world when it comes to sex, sex outside of marriage, uh, all of these issues, infidelity, all of these things that we're going to eventually talk about. Um, now, I just made a list of some of the, the different ideas and logics that, that we find ourselves hearing and maybe even believing. Um, one is that uh, sex is natural. Why should we resist it? Right? This is, this is a part of our humanity. God has, has programmed us this way. This is part of the purpose. This is what we do as humans. It's a natural thing. Why do we resist it? Why would we ever... Um, like put a leash on it and say, oh, well, it's not good in certain situations. It's natural. Um, another one is maybe in people who are in relationships with one another, there's the idea that how do we know if we're going to be physically and sexually compatible with each other as a married couple if we don't have sex before we're married? Um, literally, that's a try it before you buy it kind of idea. And that, that may sound brash, but that's exactly what that is. It, what it's doing, um, and we'll get to this later in more detail, but it's, it's, it's taking, putting the physical act above the covenant of marriage that you're beginning with in the first place. Uh, many of us may think, um, many folks think, well, I've already gone that far, then why, why should I stop? I've already done it. I've already lost my virginity to somebody that I'm not married to. Then why, why should I stop? It's, it's that same feeling that I get when I'm trying to diet, trying to eat right, and somebody brings Krispy Kreme donuts to the office, and I eat three. You, it's the same thing you do, right? Once you mess up for that day, what do you say? I just messed up. I might as well not try anymore. And so then you just eat the whole dozen. It's like I, I've eaten three already. It's not going to matter if I just eat them all. We understand how flawed that is and, and how not true that is. Um, but people approach 
sex that way too. I've already, I've already lost it. I've already given it up. So, so what's the big deal? I, I may as well not worry about it anymore. And even, and I'll go this far too, even people who maybe have been in marriages and relationships before, and then maybe they, their marriage ends in divorce, and they find themselves single again, and they think, well, I've already shared that with somebody. I've already been there, done that. It's not a big deal for me anymore. Um, then other people maybe think, I'm in a committed relationship with one other person. Um, this is the only person I've ever been with. Uh, and we're getting married. We've, we're making plans to get married. Like we know that we're committed to one another. We've only been with each other. We're not going to be going outside of our relationship with each other. So is it really that big of a deal to have sex even before we're getting married? Maybe as an engaged couple or something like that. And then maybe the one that's most common is um, God will forgive me. You know, we just kind of do play the cheap grace card. And we say, well, if I mess up, like this is such a strong battle. This is such a strong urge in this moment that I can do it and God will forgive me. Um, There's flaws in all of those ways of thinking. And the truth is it takes a great amount of courage and conviction to wage war against the passions of the flesh, as Peter talked about. It takes a lot of conviction and a lot of courage to not take something that God has given us as an incredible gift and, and mishandle it. And so that's what, I, that's what I want us to do. I want us to have a proper understanding of not just what we should be doing, but why. Because I think that's what people are missing out on. I think that's what people even in the church are missing out on. They've just been told their whole life, you and I both, especially if you've grown up in the church, don't do it. Well, why not? Well, you just don't. Just don't, because the Bible says not to. Can Can I say to you, I don't think that's good enough? It's not a good enough answer. That's not the answer that I want to give to you. That's not an answer that I want your kids or my kids to grow up Hearing, if that's the best we can do, then we've got some work to do. If that's the best we can come up with. And so this morning, I want to I begin to, to build that with us. Um, let's start with this thought. Anything that is made is made for a purpose. Think outside of sex for a minute. Just anything that's made, created, or put together is made or created for a purpose. Right? Like some of you guys are really good at building things. Some of you are, can take, and ladies too, you can take what seems to be nothing. You're like little mini MacGyvers. Like, here's, here's all this random stuff, and I, but I, you can put it together and create something that's very useful, very purposeful. In anything you put together or create, it, it has a purpose behind it, right? You don't, you don't decide to create or put together something unless there's a purpose in mind that you're trying to accomplish in putting that together, right? Everything that's made has a purpose. Um, Purpose is what drives our creativity. Um, Inventors throughout history have been driven to create and invent new things out of maybe necessity 
or an idea to accomplish a particular purpose. And so that drives our creativity. Um, There's a purpose in everything that we put together and create, and I think the same is true with God. That's part of the nature of God that we see in us, that, that God doesn't just create for the sake of creating. He creates with purpose. To, to fulfill uh, a particular purpose. And so if, if we think about sex or sexuality as an obvious creation of God, it's something that God made us with and for, obviously, then there's, there's got to be a purpose. Like, what? why is it here? Like, why is that a part of our humanity? Could God have created us as non-sexual people? Yeah, like, what if he had created humanity where, where sex didn't exist? He could have com- completely done that if he wanted to. So that kind of begs the question, well, he didn't. Well, why didn't he? What, what was the purpose? Why, why did he build us this way? So I want to give you, real quick, three purposes, I think, for God's design for sex. Okay? So number one is really easy, and I want you to just guess it. There you go. Procreation, having babies, yes. Number one is procreation, obviously. That's um, a primary function of sex in humanity. It's the creation of family within God's creation. I want us to look at Genesis 1, because uh, we've got to go back to Genesis if we're going to understand this. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both the same type of creation, same species of creation, but remarkably and obviously different. Male, female. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God could have populated the earth another way. He created Adam and Eve to fulfill the purpose of filling the earth and creating more people. He could have very much done that completely on his own without our help. But he chose to create man and woman and he chose to give them a role in the process of creation. That's an obvious thing, that, that one of the purposes of sex is for procreation. But let's just stop for a minute before we run past that too quick and just stop and think about the fact that God willingly make, makes us a part of that creative process. And you don't really understand what a big deal that is until, until you have your own kids and you see the miracle of life. You, you, you experience that coming alive um, ladies, you experience that coming alive in your own body at, after conception and you begin to feel and, and husbands, you experience that pregnancy together and then when, when, when birth comes, it, it's, you, you, you have this moment and you think this is a miracle that God has let us be in, directly involved in and it should humble us. It should humble us that, that God has invited us into the creative process um, that way. So, number one, obviously, is procreation. The second purpose, big purpose, is for intimacy. 
Number two is intimacy. And if, if we stopped at number one, then that would make us no different than the rest of the animal kingdom, right? Because all species, all animals procreate. So if God with us, if he just stopped at procreation and said, I'm giving this as a purpose for you to procreate, then, then we're on the same level as every other living creature on the earth. But we're different. And so he went another step further and, and, and he made the purpose of sex for man and woman to be for intimacy. It's not just the, the natural, it's the supernatural. There is a supernatural element to sex that is, that is exclusive for us, that separates us from the rest of creation. Look at Genesis chapter 2. We see see the account in Genesis 1, but there's a little more detail in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. So as, as Adam and Eve came together, it says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Your Bible may say cleave, that old King James Version word. Cleave to his wife, hold fast, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We could read that one flesh thing and think that that's only physical, but that's totally not the primary meaning of that one flesh. There's a spiritual connection that God created man and woman to share and and be bonded together in through their physical relationship. That word cleave, that word, that phrase literally means to like cement something together. To like glue, to bond it together permanently. That's, that's what that word means. To hold fast. Not to, not to be separated. Sex was meant to connect a husband and wife in a unique spiritual bond that would be exclusive to their relationship and no other relationship. Part of, part of the purpose of sex is to, is to create a spiritual bond between a husband and a wife that is meant to be exclusive for the two of them. What's risky about promiscuity is that that's, that's the nature of sex. It, there is a definite spiritual dimension that plays into sex. And when we take that outside of that relationship covenant that it was created in and for, we are spiritually connecting ourselves with people that we're not in a covenant relationship with. The idea that sex can be casual and physical and that's all it is, is a lie from hell. Don't believe it. Because God created it with a specific spiritual component. And it can't be, you can't separate it. I've read some people who say, well, only Christians experience sex as a spiritual component. If you're not a Christian, you don't. I don't. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches. There is a spiritual component to it. And there's a spiritual connection that happens between anybody who shares that. Just think about 
Think about the pain that broken relationships, the pain that you go through in a broken relationship when, when people have shared that together. Like it's, it's, it, it's an important thing. He will hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And notice in verse 25, the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife doesn't, doesn't have shame. There's no shame that's supposed to be a part of it when it's, when it's part of the relationship as God put it together. Shame isn't a factor. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. So number one is procreation. Number two is intimacy. Number three is pleasure. <laughs> and you're going, whoa, hold on, Eric, pump the brakes. <laughs> but we have to be honest. We have to look at the whole counsel of Scripture when it comes to this. Um, there is a unique pleasure for us as humans in the experience of sex, again, this is another thing that separates us from the rest of creation. Um, and if you don't believe that sex was created by God with a purpose and an intent for pleasure, just read the Song of Solomon if you've never read that. I don't know how many people read, ever read Song of Solomon. You don't hear it preached through very often. You may encounter it in your Sunday school classes. And probably the reason people don't like teaching about it is because it's a little saucy. It's not just a little saucy. It's very saucy. Okay? Um, and when you read it, there are lots of, there's lots of symbolism and lots of things that... Now, now there are obviously um, uh, symbols in it and, and ways that it connects that don't relate in our modern-day culture. Like, guys, I don't recommend you going home and telling your wife that her hair looks like a flock of goats coming down from Mount Gilead. That's not, I don't think that's going to translate. So don't tell her that her, her hair looks like a flock of goats. Don't tell her that her neck is like a tower. Don't tell her that her face looks like two pomegranates. Like her cheeks. Don't, like, don't, don't, use the, don't read Song of Solomon and think, oh, there's a bunch of pickup lines. That's, it's not. It won't work that way. But there is some definite, chapter 7 specifically, let me, let me read to you one verse from chapter 7. Very short, very PG. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Song of Solomon was written, was written by Solomon. Most scholars believe that it was, it was literally a love song. The entire book together was like a love poem, a love song that Solomon had written in the context of, of his very first relationship with his first, very first wife. His first experience in romance, love, and marriage was, was the source material for what he wrote in there. Now, we know that later on, Solomon, even himself, he gets outside the bounds and he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wives and it, like he, he just goes completely out of bounds. But, but the context of, of how he writes... Song of Solomon is written as a, as a song to celebrate marital affection and romance. And it's very romantic and it's very sensual when you read it. So, like, if you want to, go home, like, take chapter 7. Chapter 7 is really good. 
I'm gonna, we're not, I won't read it here for you because it might make you, it might make some of y'all squirm a little bit. But go home and read chapter 7 and then try to, try to make the illustrations, like read it knowing what they're talking about and then see what Solomon says and, and, and you'll, you might blush a little bit. You'd be like, hmm. And, and, but that's part, that's part of it. There's a, a unique experience that, that, that God has given us. Um, the animal kingdom doesn't experience that kind of pleasure. Now, uh, biologists and stuff will answer the question, well, do animals experience some kind of pleasure when they mate with each other? Yes, there is indications that they do. But not, it's not the same. They may experience a physical pleasure similar to us, but there's no. But the component for us goes up a notch because of this intimacy, because of the relationship that we share with with one another. It, it, it's more that the pleasure is not merely physical. And if we think about the the pleasure that God has gifted us in sex, and we think about it only on a physical level, again, we're missing something. That there's a there's a, a spiritual there's an emotional pleasure that we experience in, in what a husband and wife shares with one another that that is exclusive to us in creation. Okay? God was very intentional in the creation of our sexuality, and I believe he had specific purposes in mind for it. It's 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 very clear in scripture. But just like every good thing that God created, what messed it up was sin. When God, in Genesis, he was finished with his creation, after everything he created, it says that he looked at it and saw that it was what? Good. Everything that he made was good. Sex was good. That physical intimacy that he created in, between Adam and Eve as the first husband and wife. The physical element of it was good. The spiritual element of it was good. All of it worked exactly the way it was supposed to. But then when sin entered the world, what did verse what happened in verse 25? It says when he created them and brought them together, they were naked and they felt no shame. That all changed once they sinned. Once sin came into the world, the choice to disobey God's rules, his guidelines, once they stepped out of obedience is when shame came into the world. Nobody told them they were naked all of a sudden. They realized it. And then they scattered to try to cover themselves because they felt shame before God because they had violated his law. It's the same thing with sex. God did not create sex to be shameful. And there was no shame in it until sin came into the picture. And then once sin came into the picture, it messed it up. So the shame of sex, when we, when we see and experience and talk about it, in a, in a way that, and we, and we see things and experience things that are shameful about it, that is not the result of God's plan. That's not the result of God's creation. It's the result of sin. Sin is what brings shame 
into it, not, not God. God did not make it to be shameful. He made it to be good. And so what sin does is, is take something, and it does it with, with every good thing that God made, to take something he made and shaped for a specific purpose and reshape it to try to change it, to try to alter it, make it something different than what it was. That's what sin has done. That's what society, that's what sin and humanity has done to sex. Take something that God has designed and fashioned to be very specific and good and, and has misshapen it. So when we talk about abstinence, when we talk about saving, saving sex for the relationship of marriage, it's not all about keeping the rules. Like there's got to be a motivation in our hearts that goes beyond keeping a rule. There's got to be a deeper understanding of what it is and who we are that motivates us to want to honor God's lines, to want to honor those boundaries. And, and I believe it's this. It's guarding our virginity is our attempt to hold together what God has made and maintaining it the way he made it to be. It's our attempt to not allow our own sin or other people's sin to take this incredibly beautiful thing that God has fashioned very specifically and very purposeful and mess it up or to misshape it into something that it wasn't intended to be. And you say, well, why do we want to protect it? Why is it that we don't want it to be misshapen? Because the way it was fashioned to begin with goes back to what we talked about last week. It shows the excellency of the one who created it. It's not just that it's beautiful on its own, but it reflects the beauty of the one who created it. So when the beauty of the creation is misshapen and altered, it alters the beauty of the creator and the, his visibility in what that is. So we're not just guarding this one thing. We're not just trying to make sure this one thing doesn't get misshapen. We're trying to make sure that the, that the vision of the excellency of God in the world and in our lives doesn't get misshapen. It's, it, it, it's a way deeper, way bigger purpose in answering that question, why should I wait? Because the people who are, who are choosing to wait, the people who um, are able to withstand the war that's being waged. We look around and it looks like those people are, are, are getting smaller and smaller. The number of those people, is, it, it's just less and less. And it's so possible for us to do it. The world tells us it's impossible. That you just can't do it. And that's a lie. We can. It's hard. That's why Peter calls it a war. But, but what, sh what are some of the reasons why sex should be saved for a marriage relationship? I'm going to give you what, what originally in my mind were three, but when I realized number three is one we got to talk about in a little while, so we're not going to talk about three today. We're going to talk about one and two, okay? But I like where we end with one and two because I want you to walk away with a certain idea this morning. So why should sex be safe for marriage? That's a straight-up question. Why wait? Why, what's the big deal? 
And I'm going to give you the first two this morning, and then we're going to continue next week with the, with the next one. Number one is because it's exceedingly valuable. It's exceedingly valuable. Um, there is nothing like it in the world. Will anybody give me an amen on that one? You can say it. It's okay. Like, there ain't nothing like it. You can say amen. It's, it's exceedingly valuable. Um, I want to show you um, Proverbs chapter 5. Again, another um, writing of Solomon here. Chapter 5, I want us to read verses 15 through 20. And I want you to see kind of how Scripture speaks. This, this is talking about, again... The, the physical relationship between a husband and wife. That's the context. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with what? Delight. That sounds like pleasure to me, doesn't it? Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. I've heard John Piper say before, we don't put fences around weeds. We put fences around gardens. Right? When you go to a hotel room, you don't take your dirty socks and put them in the safe. I hope. <laughs> you put your wallet, you put your jewelry, you put your valuable things in the safe because you're guarding them. The world wants to tell us and our culture that to save sex for marriage, to put a fence around sex, is to devalue it. Is to make it unnatural, to unnaturally do something with it that we're meant to do with it. It's that whole idea of it's natural, we should embrace it, it, it should be something that we don't feel ashamed about. If we take it outside of the fence, that's weird. We don't, we don't put a fence around it to make it unnatural, we do it to make it priceless. You do it because it's, it's exceedingly valuable. And setting it apart is the definition of holiness. It's something that was created to be holy. And when we set it apart and we guard it and we make it different, then we're observing, we're treating a holy thing as if it's holy. Look at verse, um, go back and look at verse um, 16. What does Solomon say there? Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Like, is it something that you just want to throw out in the street? 
and let spill everywhere and not be able to control where it goes? How, how valuable are, are we making it? We're devaluing it. Something that God has made to be extremely valuable and purposeful. So number one, we save it because it's exceedingly valuable. And here's number two, because it's symbolically powerful. Symbolically powerful. Now, I'm, I'm, I really want you to track with me on this one because um, you, could, you could get confused and misunderstand me if, if we're not careful, so I want to make sure to communicate well. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's start there. Ephesians 5, 31, 32. This is, we, we talked about this last year in our marriage series, and we read from Ephesians 5 and studied it. But let's go back to verses 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? We just read that. That's out of Genesis. Remember? So in, in Ephesians, Paul is quoting that passage from Genesis that we started with. And then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a copy and a representation of the church's relationship with Jesus. That's very clear. And one was, one was created in light of the other. It's not that God created marriage and he created everything that goes into marriage, including sex, and then said, oh, you know what? That's kind of like me and the church. It's kind of like Christ and the church. Like, it's not that he came up with this idea and then, and then the connection was secondary. The idea and the connection was first. Christ and the church was the original idea. Marriage from the very beginning in the garden... God instituted marriage and created something that would later reflect the redemption that he would create between Christ and those who would trust in Christ. That's what it is. That's why it's so important to us because we understand the picture. The world sees it and doesn't make that connection. But we, we have truth and we have the design of God. And, and Paul makes it very clear that your marriage... And the deepest heart of God was meant primarily to be a picture to the rest of the world of the relationship that Christ would have with us. That's, that's primary. That's first and foremost. So there's a symbolism there. There's, a, there's an obvious, strong symbolism there. Look at Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all what? One in Christ. Now, this is where, this is where we have to be careful. And I want to make sure that you're tracking with me and understand exactly what I'm saying and you don't hear something that I'm not saying. There's obviously a, a picture 
in a marriage of the relationship between husband and wife as the relationship between Christ and his bride as we are the church. The coming together of a husband and wife into one flesh, the consummation of a marriage covenant, also reflects how Christ will one day take his church as different as we are and unify us as one in Christ. When he says to husband and wife, the two will come together and become one flesh and all of their differences in everything that makes them, they'll come together and become one flesh. There's a unity that Galatians talks about, how when we are in Christ, there's no longer Greek nor Jew, male or female, slave nor free. He says you are all one in Christ. There's this picture of even in our diversity, this unification of us coming together and and being made one body of Christ. One body of Christ coming together Husband and wife becoming one flesh. There, there's, a, there's a reflection there. And remember, one reflects the other. Okay? It's, the source is Christ and the church. But the joy and the intimacy that we experience in married sex is also a reflection of the joy that is coming when Christ and his bride will come together for eternity. Now, there you may be like, whoa, hold on, Eric. That, what are you saying? I'm not trying to be like Freud and, and sexualize everything in the Bible. But think about it this way. Husband and wife who virgins have saved themselves, there's this anticipation of the day when the two of you come together, right? And that coming together starts with that commitment of marriage. You save yourself for the wedding day, for the ceremony, for the celebration. And then the consummation is is part of that celebration of the covenant that you've made with one another. And when we wait for that, when we save our virginity and we we wait in anticipation for something that's going to be really good. That comes after the covenant, that comes after the commitment. Because of what Christ has done for us and all those who believe in him, there's a covenant relationship that has been cemented between us and Christ that we can't be separated from anymore. But we're not together, are we? We're not with Jesus. There's a veil. There's a wall. There's a separation between us. There's a separation for a short time, even though we've, we're in a committed relationship with each other, there's a separation between the bride and, his, and her groom. There's a separation. But just like an engaged couple who is making a commitment to be married and they anticipate and wait on the day after the marriage celebration when they can come together, there's a joy and an intimacy that we are waiting for as Christ's bride that will come when that veil is lifted and that wall is taken away and he comes for his bride 
It's not a sexual joy. It's not a sexual intimacy. It's a joy and an intimacy that we'll experience with him that's way better than anything we would ever experience here. It's not physical, but it's a spiritual joy and an intimacy. The, the bridegroom coming for his bride, coming together, because sex between a husband and a wife is meant to be with no barriers. Like you are opening and revealing every bit of who you are to each other. There's no boundaries. There's no holding back. I know brides don't wear veils very much, but there's a symbolism in that. When she wears the veil and when she comes before her groom, she, the, the veil is lifted, right? Meaning there's no separation anymore. And because of our commitment, our covenant relationship, we're coming together. There's a veil that is between Christ and the church right now. Even though we're in a covenant relationship with him, but there will be a day that he will come for his bride and that veil will be lifted. And there will be a joy and an intimacy that we'll experience with God and with Jesus that we've never experienced before. That we're waiting on. Are, are y'all tracking with me? Not trying to make it, not like, oh, it's, it's, it's not sexual. But the joy and the intimacy that a husband and wife experience together in sex, I believe, is a very dim reflection of the joy and the intimacy that the church will experience with Christ when we are brought together as one with no barriers, no boundaries, no veil anymore. It's beautifully symbolic. And there's, there are more reasons why. So we're, we're going to stop there because another reason why is because God gives us strong warnings in his word about how we handle it. You say, why is it that we, that we save sex until marriage? God has some very strong things to say about why we should do that. And that's also a reason. And so we're going to talk about those next week. But this week, what I, what I want more than anything is for you to, to capture this picture. Because we'll never understand the urgency of God's instructions that we'll talk about next week. We won't understand how urgent his instruction is if we don't first understand the beauty and the goodness of what those instructions are meant to protect. Before we can really understand why does God give us very plain, firm guidelines for how sex should be handled, we have to sit first and understand exactly what it is what it was meant for and why it's so valuable and so beautiful.